0: What is up everybody welcome back to another episode of the rewired soul podcast and today once again i have another amazing author and researcher it is none other than bruce Alright, we're going to be talking about one of his books. He's written multiple books, but today we're going to be talking about Super Sense. Alright, so before I dive into, you know, the conversation everything like that, here's a little here's a little backstory. alright? I told you guys who have been paying attention that we were going to get a little spooky this week, okay? So... I personally used to just be insanely afraid of like scary movies and like I didn't I didn't know if you should believe in ghosts and all these other things, right? And as many of you know who've been following the podcast, I'm very try to be very scientific-minded and all that. But anyways, I I I watch a bunch of scary movies and stuff like that now with my girlfriend and all that, and it's it's actually kind of fun because I've read so many books like Bruce Hood's books. But I started wondering, like, why do we believe in this stuff? Like, why do we believe in Ouija boards? Why do we believe in the supernatural? Why do we believe in ghosts and demons? And why do we believe psychics? You know, so many things that there is absolutely no scientific evidence for. And listen, listen, if you're listening to this and you believe in that stuff, I apologize, but there is no scientific evidence for it all right but I'm always fascinated with human behavior like why do we believe in the weirdest things right so I was introduced to the work of Bruce Hood I think I think I heard about his work from uh one of Paul Bloom's books and by the way if you know who Paul Bloom is he will be on the podcast talking about his new book pretty soon anyways Heard about Bruce Hood, read this book, Super Sense, and I, I, I loved it, all right? I was like, I wanna read this again. So when I got in touch with Bruce and he said he was coming on the podcast, I was like, yes, now I have an excuse to read this book again. So we're gonna be talking about so many fun things. Like, again, like why do people believe in psychics? Here's a question for you: If you found out that there was like a gruesome murder in a house, would you move into it? Well, in some states, by law, they have to tell you, right? Sometimes the law gets involved with supernatural beliefs and that's insane, right? So Bruce and I talk about that. But here's another experiment for you, a thought experiment. If there was a sweater, a very nice looking sweater and I asked you to wear it, would you do it? Probably, but what if I told you that sweater was worn by a serial killer? All right. This is actually uh, a study that Bruce has done. He's done so many cool and interesting studies about this, and we dive into supernatural beliefs. Why do we believe in you know ghosts and psychics and all that? But we also talk about why do people believe you know in uh, in gods and how that's part of how we evolved and so many other fun things. So so yeah. Like I hope you enjoy this episode, Bruce has multiple books and I really hope he comes back on because I could talk to him all day about all his different books. But anyways, I really, really, really hope you enjoy this episode and make sure you check down in the description below, grab a copy of Super Sense, follow Bruce on Twitter, but I'm gonna link some of his other books down below as well. Uh, I I'm I still haven't read them all, but I plan on it. <laughs> I've read a couple of his other ones. So check down in the description below and make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul because I'm always giving you updates about books I'm reading, upcoming episodes, and you won't miss anything when a new episode comes out. But anyways, this was a long intro. I appreciate you, but I had to set the foundation for Bruce Hood because he is awesome. All right. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Bruce Hood about his book, Super Sense. All right. Hello, Bruce. Thank you for joining me. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing fine, Chris. Great for having me on your show. I'm delighted.
0: Yeah, a- absolutely. So we're here to talk about your book, Super Sense. And yeah, I've as somebody who's uh scientific-minded and a skeptic, I've just been curious why people believe in whether superstition, supernatural, so where where did your interest in studying why people believe in the supernatural kind of come from?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I, um, I think I used to be a believer. I'm trying to remember what I was like mm. as a child. And I, I grew up uh, at a time when Yuri Geller was very prominent. And I, I think like everybody else, we were just enthralled by this possibility of these untapped abilities of the mind and uh, so I went to university and, and took a, a degree in psychology. Although admittedly I was doing things like accountancy and mathematics and stuff like that, but I took yeah. this topic of psychology because I wanted to, I wanted to tap into my own, you know my, my my abilities according to Uri Geller, and I got very disappointed to discover actually from a scientific perspective there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever in the paranormal. So that kind <laughs> of desire as a child was kind of blown out of the water. But what I really discovered. In its place was actually a much more interesting story about the mind and what little we know about how it works. And mm-hmm. so I started on this path of uh, becoming a psychologist, a, a, an experimental psychologist, so I was really wedded to the scientific method, uh, doing experiments, uh, rigorous approaches, statistics, data, you know, trying to be as, as, as rigorous as possible. And uh, I, I did that for about 20 years, um, mm-hmm. around about uh, I think because that book now, Super Sense, is that's uh, came out in 2009, so that's about 12 years old now. Mm-hmm. Um, I approached the publishers and said, Look, I've got a, I work with children basically, I study kids, and I'm really interested in some of the ways that children think. And I, I think, I believe that um, one of the reasons that people believe unreasonable things or believe in the supernatural is partly because uh, a lot of them uh, feed into early childhood notions about how the world works. And so that's Mm -hmm. what the book is about. It's a sort of a thesis, a hypothesis, which actually after 12 years, it's been gathering strength. And it's interesting to see that others are now publishing along data, which confirms this idea that we have a brain which has evolved to make sense of the world. And as children, we naturally impose structure and order on that world. And when you view it through the lens of supernatural thinking, you can immediately see why many of these beliefs, which are universal, uh, resonate with what we think as kids. So that's really what the book's about. It, it was a mm-hmm. it was a, a, a new approach. And I, I'd just like to also add this, Chris, that at the time I wrote this book, there was another book, which was a huge blockbuster, which was called The God Delusion mm-hmm. by Richard Dawkins. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a fan of Dawkins. I actually got into science because I read The Selfish Gene.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I think he was being a bit unfair or a bit... Uh, disingenuous with, yeah. with religion uh, and I because I didn't think everything was indoctrination when it came to the supernatural and that's why the book doesn't really address the re- religion we talk about it but but I was sort of saying actually we all have supernatural beliefs uh, mm-hmm. we just don't recognize them as such so that's really what the book is about
0: yeah yeah and and I think that's one of the most interesting things when I, I think about you know the belief in the supernatural you'll i you know just on a day-to-day basis you know we we hang around like-minded individuals right and and i know people who are very scientific minded and you know evidence-based and da 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 and then but they just have like a superstitious belief yeah. or they have like healing crystals or believe yeah. in you know and i'm just like that is so interesting right like those, <laughs> those two things can kind of live in the same world and i think one of the most interesting parts of super sense because maybe and maybe it's just because i'm really interested in just kind of like uh tribalism and how we evolve like you know and we want to be a part of the group and you touch on that quite a bit so Mm -hmm. if you could this is kind of a two-parter because yeah, uh, I don't. I don't even think I told you this, but I've done multiple videos about some of your research on my YouTube channel, right? Oh, really? And one of them is, yeah, the 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 serial killer cardigan, uh, right? So. I don't know and, Great, i gotta watch that how did it go uh, it, it went good like people uh, other people are definitely interested in this stuff i also did one about why people won't live in a murder house you know yeah. where crazy stuff took place and, yeah. and you know we'll talk about essentialism a little bit but um but yeah you kind of have like a theory of why it helped with like you know kind of group membership to not want to wear the cardigan of a serial killer so can you kind of uh briefly explain that study what it was all about and kind of the theory yeah. behind that
1: yeah. Okay. So, so the book has um, certain hypotheses that uh, I, I present. One is that the origins of supernatural thinking can be traced to the way our brains naturally think, and so we imbue the world with patterns and energies and forces. Um, but then, of course, we grow up and we get educated, and we've got science and tells us this is there's no evidence for it. But why do then people still continue to do this? And and what was the what was the driving force for this to become a predominant aspect of people's lives because before we got into the scientific revolution 400 years ago uh religion and belief were, were, were really dominant and so there, there has to be more than just kind of not really understanding the world there's more to why we have these beliefs and then i think it also explains why we continue to have them today and as you mentioned there are people who seem to operate with two modes of thinking they can have a scientific view of the world but they can also retain a kind of more spiritual view mm-hmm. and one of the arguments i argued i made in the book is that when you believe that there are uh aspects of reality which uh do not lend themselves to scrutiny then that means that that depends on belief and faith Mm -hmm. and that's the whole point faith depends on the absence of evidence Mm -hmm. uh people um they they have faith precisely because there's no evidence and so when you become a member of a group which has a common belief system in which uh, there is a belief in some supernatural entity or force or, or whatever, you are signaling to that membership group of the group that you are buying into the same belief system. Mm-hmm. And so the reason that supernatural thinking works is because it takes mundane things like it could be a book, it could be a temple, it could be a tree, it could be a rock, it doesn't, it could be the land on which you're born. it doesn't really matter. But as soon as they are imbued with some dimension of reality, which cannot be measured, then they become sacred. And these are the sacred values that all cohesive groups really have. Mm
2: -hmm. So if you
1: look at any religion or any cohesive group, it will have a sacred value. And that is something which is unassailable by evidence. It's something that shouldn't be owned. It can't be bought. Mm -hmm. It should be something which both the rich and the the poorest member of the group will acknowledge that this is something which is transcendent so the supernatural takes the mundane makes it transcendent into the spiritual and therefore beyond the realms of mortal men
0: mhm yeah and uh, and yeah so so like with the with the serial killer cardigan like you mentioned like we we might not want to hang out with someone who would just easily say without a thought that yeah this cardigan used to be owned by a serial killer and I'll just you know I'll just wear it right and So as you were talking too, I was, I was wondering about this. So the other day, the other day I was on Twitter, like I try to read, you know, books from all different, you know, uh, realms and different thoughts. And like, I I make it a point to try to read books from people I disagree with ideologically. Right. And anyways, I was talking about this book on Twitter and somebody said something along the lines of, cause I was like, Hey, you know, you should at least give this book a chance. Like, I don't like judging books without actually reading it. And someone brought up like, oh, so would you read Mein Kampf by Hitler, right? <laughs> and I'm curious with, cause I've, I've done some episodes with people talking about just kind of like the culture wars and the outrage culture. Do you think that's kind of like a modern version? Like when yeah. we're talking about like what's sacred and stuff like this this thing, like you shouldn't read it. You shouldn't touch yeah. it. It's the spawn of evil. Like what have, what have you noticed?
1: Yeah, exactly. And so that was the, the origin of, of the killer carding. And So for, for your listeners who may not be familiar with it, um, this was a stunt that I did originally before I wrote the book. This is one of the reasons I got the offer to write the book is I, I used to go to yeah. talks at science uh, festivals and I was working on this concept of uh, essentialism, which is that um, part of the way you think about the world is that you chop it up into categories and chop it up to objects. Um, these objects have more or less importance to you, depending on their significance in terms of the emotional valence they convey.
2: Mm-hmm. So, uh,
1: you know, we have possessions and we have a connection with our possessions, especially if those are things which have been given to us by loved ones or things we've inherited or our parents or whatever. These things are irreplaceable. These things are physical entities but we imbue them with a significance that we conceptualize like an essence that there's something in it. It's a metaphysical property. Mm -hmm. Now that, um, that essence can be positive as in the case of sentimental objects, but it can also be negative. It's the sort of, um, energy that inhabits things that we feel reluctant to come into physical contact with, like uh, a book by Hitler or uh, walking to Auschwitz and, and touching the, the physical manifestation of these atrocities because they evoke within us a very rapid and intuitive revulsion, disgust, repugnation. It's a very emotional experience. And that's what the killer cardigan stunt was. So when I was kind of giving this talk to the audience, I, I, uh, I held up a, a sweater or a cardigan and it was actually a whole lot of pre- it was actually a, a whole bunch of journalists in the, in the room because it was a pre conference sort of press conference. Mm-hmm. And I held up this cardigan and I said, Would you be willing to wear this cardigan for 20, 20 pounds, which is about 40 bucks in those days? And all the hands go, up, Yeah, I'll wear the cardigan. I said, Would you still be willing to wear this cardigan, and put it on, if you knew it was worn by Fred West? Uh, now, Fred West in the UK was a mass murderer. When I did the stunt in the US, I used Jeffrey Dahmer, but it doesn't matter yeah. who. But then the hands come down. And then, of course, there's always a couple of keeping their hands up, saying, "Oh yeah, I could do that." And then everyone's looking at them, saying, "God, you're gross. Why would you right? really do that?" So it works both ways because people who say, "Oh, I'm rational. I can do it," they are rejected by the majority who just think it's just something you just shouldn't do, and that's because it violates our um, decorum, our violates our moral compass about what we should and shouldn't do. And in the book, I actually talk about why that happens because I think this disgust. Builds upon an intuitive theory of biology that we feel that you might be contaminated by evil by touching something or wearing something, and this actually is the work of Paul Rosen. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's done this work. I can't take credit for it, but I think that 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 simple uh, biological model of contamination has infiltrated the way that we feel about physical things. So, Mm -hmm. and it's interesting you should mention out of Hitler's mind camp because when I talked about this theory, first of all, a lot of people said, oh you're not demonstrating anything to do with contamination of biology. All you're doing is showing that when you mention these people's names, the association of the name Mm. is triggering your revulsion, okay? So when I say Adolf Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer, it's all the associations that makes you feel bad. I said, no, no, it's really a biological thing. And the way you can prove that, I said, which would you rather touch? A cookery book or a book of of Mein Kampf or a biography of Hitler? I said, well, the cookery book. So, okay, but whatever the cookery book was owned by Adolf Hitler, this his personal copy. You can't be touching it there. oh, no, 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 I wouldn't want to touch that. But, you know, on one hand, you've got a book which documents the atrocities of Hitler, or a biography of him, and another book which tells you how to make apple strudel. And, mm-hmm. and yet one book is more offensive than the other. And why? Because of its personal connection with the previous owner. So yeah. that's why I think it's a contamination thing.
0: Yeah, and it, yeah, it's really interesting. And in the book too, you talk about you know moral dumbfounding, and that's something that Jonathan Haidt writes yeah, yeah. about, and everything like that. And uh, and yeah, and I what, what I love about like your book and books like that is just these thought experiments. I love to sit there and then just kind of like reflect and say like, "Ha, huh, that makes absolutely no." sense at all. Right. And, and yeah, so I'm curious, you know, I, uh, you know, you've been doing this for so long when it comes to essentialism, I'm, you know, we evolve this way. And, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of debates around like, you know, there's things that from our, you know, ancestral past that we should be like kind of getting out of and things like that. But with essentialism, I'm curious if you think it's like a net positive or net negative, because I think one of the examples you talk about in the book, and I've heard a study about this when it comes to organ transfers and organ donation. Right. And I've heard that, you know, they're like a person wouldn't take an organ if they knew that that person was bad or a serial killer. And then there's some other things, just like the psychological effect of, you know, if a liver was passed on like five times, the sixth person isn't going to take it even though it could save their life just because they think something, you know, so, so I could see where there's like life or death situations where essentialism can kind of like, mess us up but you know can you kind of explain why this was necessary for evolution and is it uh, a net positive or a net negative today in 2021?
1: Yeah well the one thing um to be slightly wary about is is always uh trying to give an evolutionary account for anything that we have today and that's one of the Mm. problems of evolutionary psychology is that you can always come up with a just the story and that story might fit the account but we don't know with hindsight whether or not that's accurate or not so I I, whilst I think it's a, an interesting uh, exercise to try and imagine why something is still around, what benefit it could convey, we've mm-hmm. got to be slightly careful that we don't oversell that because mm. uh, evolutionary psychology has undermined itself many times by making <laughs> these sorts of claims. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, um, you know the brain didn't fall out of the sky. Uh, it, it evolved. It must have uh, been uh, shaped by previous environments which have made it what it is today. Uh, the brain we have today, of course, is not too dissimilar to the brain that we had 50,000 years ago. Uh, we've just moved on so quickly with technology. So there's a lot of legacies in the way that we think about the world, which I think play out in modern Europe. Now, essentialism, I actually believe, is part and parcel of the mechanism by which we chop the world up into categories. Mm. Um, it's just our nature uh, to see the world as discontinuous. So we see boundaries everywhere. We see groups of people. We see uh, gender as a category, we see identity as a category, we see uh, everything, psychologically we just chop the world up. Now, when it comes to something like gender and identity, uh, in the past five years, we've now seen how the boundaries for that have just suddenly disappeared. Mm-hmm. And people are now saying, actually, there, there isn't any discrete boundary anymore, these, these, tro- these tro- and change. But even down at the basic physical level, the way you see the physical world, uh, I just did a paper with some theoretical um, uh, uh, theorists about uh, how you actually chop the world up in terms of the physics, mm-hmm. and actually it's continuous. There are the the boundaries don't exist. We impose boundaries all the time. So our mind um, basically structures the world the world into these categories. Now, as part of that process of constructing the boundaries you also generate a kind of intuitive sense of what it is that connects them all together. And that I I call the essence because Mm -hmm. you can't actually articulate what an essence is. It's just that, you know, the all members of that group have that thing, femininity or um, pleasure or whatever. These are things which can all be kind of captured by this essential property. And by the way, um, the the Greeks also thought like this because they talked about the world, the physical world being made up of the four elements. Mm -hmm. But the fifth element was the quint quintessence quintessential so that's uh, where the quintessential comes from it's this fifth element which defines the membership of the category now getting back to your uh, discussion about is it uh, is it positive or negative now in the case of transplantation now that's a clear exam that's a clear example where there's a sort of biological contamination notion and if the previous person was a mass murderer then you wouldn't be very comfortable with that mm-hmm. and you might say oh well that's because maybe genetically they're there's something which is in the genes, but ultimately it comes down to an intuitive or naive theory of what makes personality. We think it's embodied within mm. the tissue. Now, clearly in the brain, it is to some extent, but not necessarily in the liver, as far as we're aware. Um, I think you can override your intuitions uh, if necessity uh, forces you to, I think given the choice, uh, but we do, know, we do know there are examples where people won't take blood transfusions Uh, who have died, uh, who have rejected, who have been offered um, transplantations and who have, on their religious grounds, have decided not to take them. So uh, for some people of conviction, uh, they don't don't, uh, necessarily um, uh, go for reason. They they go for their their emotional system. So we mustn't um, underplay it. Uh, Some people feel very strongly about this. In the same way, 50 years ago, you know, Chris, People wouldn't sit on a bus with black people or they would feel that, you know, we had segregation because there was this, you know, ludicrous assumption that somehow you could be contaminated. And that Mm -hmm. AIDS was another example of that because we didn't really know what AIDS was at the time. But even once we discovered how the pathogen worked, it still created a whole sense of revulsion, disgust and, you know, segregation. So these things are are still at the root of, of the way we think. And just to end on that, I mean, the point is that even though you know that maybe you're being irrational, it's mm-hmm. sometimes very difficult to counteract these um, beliefs with reasons because they lie uh, dormant, I think, and, and they can be triggered, uh, which mm-hmm. is a point I make in the book. You can have someone who's really highly educated, yeah. and yet, um, under the right circumstances, can display all these super sense issues.
0: Yeah, it's, it is interesting that you talked about, you know, segregation and things like that. A few weeks ago, I had uh, the philosopher uh, David Livingston Smith on here. He wrote a book called On Inhumanity, and there's some stuff about essentialism and thinking that, you know, like people have this essence. And that's how we start saying like, you know, us versus them and dehumanizing people and all that kind of stuff. And it's it's just weird because, you know, at the same time, there's like, you know, uh, if I just off the top of my head, my grandmother, she passed away, you know, four or five years ago, but something she gave me, it's like, there's this essentialism to that. And that's not hurting anybody. That's a positive. That's a memory of her. And I feel this attachment, but then there's this other side when we're talking about blood transfusions or dehumanization and and all that and uh i i don't know um like i i actually i hate to admit it but i still need to read your book on uh the self because i find all that stuff yeah Yeah, yeah. interesting and i don't know it just it it feels like so much of this stuff kind of intersects and the more you learn about it and just kind of play around with these thoughts it helps you balance that rational rationality and irrationality a bit like let me ask you this: being the scientific-minded person you are, are, how often do you run into this, where you deal oh, with essential all, all the time, all the time. Yeah.
1: Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, a, um, I'm aware of it, so I recognize it immediately. Um, I mean I, went, I, I became a collector of memorabilia, mm-hmm. and that's essentialist thinking, you know the whole, sort of, the whole collection, collecting phenomenon. Uh, is pure essentialism. Uh, I, I, I catch myself very often, uh, especially during the pandemic. Of course, with, you know, and, and that's a rational thing, isn't it? But to, to have these fears heightened by the sense of contagion is actually an adaptive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, And and of course, you don't know why someone's evil. Maybe it is a pathogen. So, but you know, I I do recognize in myself these behaviors. But moreover, I I find it—it makes a lot of sense to me when I read about uh, or I hear about, for example, conflict over land, Palestine, uh, the conflict Mm. in the Middle East. They're fighting over dirt. I mean, (laughs) it's not even really good dirt. It's not even fertile, but it's sacred because it's there. You know, because of what it means. Mm-hmm. um you know there was a time where people would carry around uh you know uh, buckets of dirt from their homeland as it is keeping in contact there was a company when i f- first published this book i gave an interview and i was absolutely astounded to be on a show uh and they were interviewing an irish company that was selling dirt irish dirt uh to to america to um to obviously people who their ancestors had moved over to to the states and they wanted to be buried with a little bit of the homeland. So they were literally selling dirt. Yeah. And I just thought that is pure, essentialist thinking. So I suppose I, I recognize it myself but I also see it as, you know, just about every realm of human decision making. This irrational component of humans is just—it's just the natural way of thinking.
0: Yeah, it, you know, you know, it's interesting too. Like I love one of the reasons I love books like yours, and just all the all the books I read is I am just fascinated by human behavior, right? And uh, you mentioned like collectibles, right? Yeah. I find it so interesting where someone collects, let's say, I don't know, 1980s toys, right? Or Star Wars memorabilia, totally rational to them, right? And then they they see somebody else who collects like, I don't know, vintage records or makeup and they judge that person. They yeah. don't see how it's the same thing, right? Yeah. And, and what's interesting too is the, the value we put on this stuff, like, uh, you, you mentioned this in the book, but uh, on the positive side, so not even the killer card again, but like you mentioned Mr. Rogers sweater, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and when you look at celebrity auctions, like something that a celebrity touched and uh, if, if it gets washed, they would pay less for it and That's stuff right. like that. So, so what, what, what is it that makes us find something more valuable that we would be willing to spend our hard earned money on something that someone touched or whatever, kind of like you mentioned with the dirt or something yeah. positive.
1: Well, I mean, there, 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 there are people who uh, who trade in memorabilia and, mm-hmm. and their their motivations are financial. And so they're working with supply and demand. And so the rarer an item is, because um, people who collect are kind of tend to be a bit obsessive. So if they're trying to complete their collection, they'll pay more for a specific item in order to complete the collection. And that's one component collecting. But for a large number of people, um, connecting with other significant individuals is more to do with this essentialist notion that, it, you know, worn by something or, or touched by something and, and not just anything. It's, it's things which seem to trigger the, I suppose, the symbolism of who that person is. So, for example, for maybe someone like Churchill it would be one of his cigars because that's what, what we always think of mm-hmm. uh, or Roosevelt might be, you know, might be the wheelchair or whatever, whatever is, is, is what we consider to be the most uh, emblematic or most, um, you know, most symbolic of who that person is. And these are people that we generally want to form an emotional connection with in the sense that we want to have that kind of um, contact with them. Mm-hmm. And so it, it is funny. I mean, um, there was uh, when I, you know, when I first published the book, I tried to persuade my publisher to actually uh, use some of my blood in the <laughs> publication of the book. I wanted them to actually put me in the book, and I thought that'd be really good. And they said, absolutely no way we were going to do that. So I ended up having a stat made, which looked like a blood splotch. And, and I do it in red said, uh, and, and when you sign books as an author, you usually kind of do a signature. So I do, I do a signature and I put the, this has the essence flash. of it I said, yeah. in this ink is part of my blood. And they go, oh, that's really gross. But yeah, I really like it. And I thought it was a really great idea. And then I discovered there's this is famous Indian uh, batsman who had literally done the same thing. And his books were selling for a significantly large amount of money. But, but the point is, yeah, um, people want to have that physical connection. Uh, with the people they idolize. I and mean, they obviously, as I said, they want to avoid uh, those which they feel repulsed by. But it is is—it is a biological, naive biological uh, contamination or contagion kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. It's funny, because at the time of recording this, today, uh, a musician, rapper uh, Lil Nas X, I don't know if you heard about this story, but he's in court today for these Nikes that he made that right. supposedly had human blood in them. Right? Oh, really? And people... <laughs> lost it. So this is something that I would love. I'd love to hear your thoughts about. Like, I'm curious if like, should, should the, the legal system get involved with essentialist beliefs like for example um you know you talk about like uh fred west house and you know uh, i think jeffrey dahmer's apartment complex was torn down and completely leveled out and you know they do this a lot well um i don't know if it's like this in the uk but in the united states in certain states if you're selling a house if a murder or death took place you have to disclose it right which is That is, that's a supernatural belief. And now there's a law around a supernatural belief. So, so what, what are your thoughts around that? Like, is that something that the legal system should even get involved with or just say it's silly? Well, I think there's a number of issues in there. I mean, certainly when it comes to these stigmatized, they're called stigmatized
1: houses. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the U S it's, you have to declare it. You don't have to do it in the UK um, but you're actually right because it does have a financial implication. And if you sell a house and the, uh, and the, the vendor doesn't disclose the previous, what happened there, then that has an impact financially on the ability to sell on again. So arguably, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain a lawyer could make a very good case that there had been some deception going on there, but I don't think it's, necess- I don't think yet, I may be wrong about this, but I don't think you have to disclose it in the same way that you have to disclose stigmatized houses in the u.s so Mm -hmm. i think i think that's really interesting when it comes to uh the general point about whether law should actually get involved in irrational thinking well it already is Mm. um it it gets involved in all aspects of intellectual property and property itself Uh. is another concept uh what is an authentic what's an original um you know that is a quagmire Of of uh argument about what makes something the original. So, for example, in the book I talk about the Ship of Theseus. And this is like the first, the first kind of thought experiment about you know what uh what makes something what it truly is. And so um it's a story, it was Plutarch, the Roman uh essayist, he talks about this Ship of Theseus, this Greek king Theseus. Uh, they decide to put his ship into storage, it's this magnificent ship, and over the years, it starts to deteriorate, so the shipwrights come back every so often, they replace it plank by plank, and eventually the ship is restored over the years, and Plutarch asks, is this still the same ship of Theseus, and most people think, yes, yeah, just a ship that's been renovated, and he says, aha, but what happens if the, uh, all the abandoned planks, they kept them in storage, they reassemble a second ship, which is the ship of Theseus? Now, that presents a real conundrum to people because it's not clear which is the original ship. In the same way, and I use this as a thought experiment, imagine that you have your wedding ring that you really care about and you take it to the jeweler and he says, okay, uh, I'm going to replace a micron of gold, a tiny little bit of gold there. Is it still the same ring? You say, yeah, of course it is. But if you did that over a long period of time, so he eventually replaces every micron of gold, uh, so there's no original gold, is it still the same ring? Well, people think uh it's got continuity it must still be the same ring but then of course you say well what about if you went on that first day and mean, just replaces the whole ring is it the same ring no it's not yeah so intuitively we've got a sense that there's something of authenticity there's something about identity and uniqueness which transcends the physical components mm-hmm. because it's, it's as if there's something in addition and that is something that people argue about uh for example uh this is in my last book, uh, Possessed, by the way. I wrote about, because a lot, a lot of what I'm talking about actually has bearing on ownership, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I talk about uh, I talk about this fantastic case of a guy buying a smoker grill uh, on an auction sale and he opens up and he finds a leg inside, a mummified leg. <laughs> and, uh, you know- Wait, and a, this
0: is a real story?
1: It's a real story, oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, Shannon Wishart, 2007. He goes and buys this-, this uh, He's at a, an auction sale it's a it's the storage company it's selling off the contents of storage units that people are not paying their uh rental he buys a smoker grill and inside there's a human foot and he, he gets completely grossed out and the police come and take it away because they don't know where it's a murder or someone's been digging up graves. it turns out it doesn't come from a corpse it comes from a guy who's alive called john wood and john wood had had his leg amputated following an accident an aircraft accident and um he uh he ended up kind of losing all his house and all his income and he put his mummified leg because he asked the hospital can i have my foot back Weirdly <laughs> enough. and he put all the storage and then um shannon Wishart buys it and so they end up in court arguing who owns the foot is it because you know he's paid it he's got a legitimate bill of sale he's bought the he's bought the grill and all the contents in and john wood is challenging him saying that's my foot he said no no but you've given up the legality of it so you can see How these issues of essentialism and identity and property and ownership, you know, the law has to step in because these are concepts. And whenever you're dealing with a concept, Mm. that's basically a, a human way of thinking about something, then that means it's open to interpretation.
0: Yeah, it's, it's it's so interesting. And I didn't even realize uh, you had that book. I'm going to get it right after we're done talking, uh, <laughs> Possessed. Because I recently read a book. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, you checked it out. It was called Mine from uh, Michael Heller and James Salzman. But it's all about ownership and stuff. And they were bringing up stuff. And I'm like, huh, that's interesting. Yeah, like, these
1: are a bunch of lawyers. Actually, my original, yeah. Possessed was originally going to be called Mine as well. Uh, uh, I published it before. This has just come out, like in the last couple of years or something.
0: I think it was just a few months ago, like earlier. Yeah, in yeah, it did come
1: out. There, I think they. um, So I approach it as a psychologist. I think they approach it as lawyers. Yeah. Because, uh, it, it's really interesting because and there's all these fantastic cases in, in legal systems because the law doesn't necessarily fit with people's intuitions. Mm-hmm. People have certain assumptions that you own things, but actually, legally, not necessarily. Like you know, you can own. You know, you can own hedgehogs in one county and not another, or you can get yeah. tattoos in one county and not another. It's, it's really, America's amazing that way because you've got this patchwork of legal systems and they differ.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: you know, you own certain pets in one state and not another. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's super interesting, uh, you know, when the law gets involved. What, what I think is interesting, too, is they often turn to previous cases for like some kind of standard. Right, yeah. like oh, have we ever dealt with this? And and just even talking about the the ship of thesis and just like you know, like just barely changing things. It's like I think you know they should be individual cases because maybe one day a judge thinks this way, and this other judge, especially if you take into consideration, is this a more religious part of the country or a more secular part of the country? They're going to have different beliefs and and so many things. And you know, it was interesting when you mentioned uh, that that. You know the ship of thesis like a uh, thought experiment they actually i don't know if you watch the new show wandavision the new marvel show but uh one of the characters actually talks about it because there's a clone of him oh right um, really. yeah and they and they talk about it so i'm like there we go now yeah, now yeah. The, the wider population because it's really interesting i've i've done thought experiments like that with my son and he's only 12 right like yeah, yeah. is this still the same thing is this still you know and just moving things around just because i think it's good to play around with these ideas and just kind of see the world like that. So one thing I've been dying to talk to you about is like just diving into like the supernatural, like thinking about, like you, you talk about this in the book, um, like psychics and feeling a presence and all these things. So I'm not sure if you're how, how often you're on social media apps, like TikTok and everything, but my girlfriend loves sending me videos of like, psychics or witches and things like that so why do you think it's it's 2021 and people will still spend money going to a psychic and getting a reading um i wonder if it's this false sense of control or what is it why why do you think this is
1: i think um i think there are a number of reasons i mean the first thing is i don't believe it's indoctrination okay so i think Mm. the the, the Richard Dawkins argument is, is not true. I think uh, religions and cultures uh, perpetuate or uh, amplify what our intuitions in the first place. Mm. Number, one pe- number one reason that people believe in this stuff is because of evidence, what they think is evidence, their experiences, the testimony of other people around them, but also hope um, because when everything else is taken away, um, people will turn to experts which pers- who seem to provide
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: reassurance that there's something that can be done. This is so much so obviously in the case of people with terminal illnesses and, and, and various forms of malady where they seek out, uh, once they've been through the conventional systems, they will then turn to alternative forms because basically they've, they've run out of, of solutions. People need to be doing something. Um, the worst state of, uh, for humans is a sense of not having any control, okay? Mm-hmm. okay. Is psychologically corrosive. It's stressful. Uh, and this is why we engage in rituals and routines and superstitions. And this is why athletes uh, yeah. will typically have these routines and rituals that give this a sense of familiarity, uh, gives them a sense of control. It helps them center, it helps them compose themselves. And it works because if you take away all these rituals or their superstitious uh, icons and stuff like that, they generally don't feel as empowered. So mm-hmm. let's, be, let's get something straight from the start. These beliefs work, but they yeah. work as the they provide you with a sense of control. Now, as to why people believe in the psychics, well, that's because there just seems to be so much evidence that they're correct. Um, and that's because humans are really poor at working out the probability of things and the likelihood of things. And all these weird and wonderful coincidences that just seem to be beyond explanation are just the natural occurrences of randomness in the universe. Mm-hmm. But we see it uh, from our perspective as being significant. For example, you could have a dream of your Aunt Mimi or whatever, <laughs> and you haven't heard of her from ages. And the next day you get a phone call, say Aunt Mimi died. Now, no amount of explanation in terms of random events of all the people who have dreamed of their Aunt Mimmies in the world at that point in time, and nothing happened to their Aunt Mimi. But you, of course, because you remember that, will we'll see that as a highly significant event. So we, 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 we select these coincidences and we imbue them with such significance. And of course, when you hear of other people talking about their experiences, mm. then immediately you say, well, there must be something to this. It can't be, science can't explain it. Prove, prove to me that it's not supernatural. And anyone who knows a little bit about how science works knows that you cannot prove a negative. You cannot disprove that there wasn't a spirit or a ghost. You cannot disprove anything. Science doesn't work that way. Science accumulates positive evidence that supports a hypothesis. But science doesn't prove even, you know, a lot of the things that we think are proven. No, science doesn't work that way. But that's not the way we think naturally. We, we, We rely on testimony. We rely on examples. And this reinforces what our intuitions are, that there are these structures. And that comes from childhood. So really, it's a combination of our bias to see structure and order in the world, plus all the examples which seem to support and confirm what we think must be true in the first place. Mm -hmm. And science doesn't easily eradicate that. Uh, It does for some people. Education is a very good antidote to belief. And so the more highly educated you are, the less likely you are to be religious and less likely to believe in this stuff. But as I say in the book, it doesn't eradicate it because these things lie dormant in all of us. Yeah. And are in a very stressful situation. You know, they say there are no atheists in the foxhole. And what they mean by that, when you're in war, suddenly, you know, <laughs> you're going to believe in anything yeah. because it's important to have some hope or some belief that you can do something about it. Yeah. So that's kind of what it is. It's, it's a combination of um, our biases uh, and the evidence. And, and of course, this need to feel that there is some control in humours. And by the way, one of the one of the things going back to this kind of uh, using this as a as a book to counter the anti-religious movement. And I'm, I'm an atheist, by the way. I, uh, mm-hmm. but I do I do I do see why religions are so powerful, and I understand what people get out of it. But, uh, and, and I'm not um, I'm not one of these really kind of aggressive anti-religious people. Yeah. I'm, uh, let's not get into the politics of that. But you know, one of the reasons that Super Sense I uh, wrote the book was just to point out that. Uh, it could be any weird kind of thing, your superstitious behavior before you play golf or you know tennis or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I end the book by talking about probably the most common belief, a superstitious belief that people are even recognize as superstitious. And that is the belief that you're being watched. Yeah. Nine out of ten people think they can tell when they're being watched. Um and I'm yeah. sure some of your listeners are there going, Of course I can, you know. And I've had this discussion with other scientists who so say, Yeah, I can tell when I'm being watched. But actually when you sit down and logically work it out there's no way you could do that using normal sensory systems okay what our brain has and so i i actually take that as a good example and unpick it and show you where that belief comes from Mm -hmm. why it's so strong and why it just is a universal and it's not indoctrination because no religion or no new age systems generally talks about this apart from rupert sheldrake but then He's a bit
0: crazy. Yeah, Oops. yeah, and uh, <laughs> no, it, it's, it's interesting because I, uh, yeah, like I just finished the book again. And and you talk about some some of the things like, uh, you know, studies they've done where, you know, the I, I believe you touched on one where they, they gave people the opportunity to cheat and they told certain people that this room was haunted, but there's been other studies where they've put an eyes above and they oh, yeah. have just kind of inv- evolved. And there's, you know, uh, when you think about like how we evolved as groups and things like that, our belief, uh, that dormant belief, it kind of helps us stay accountable when we think nobody's watching and everything. And, and trust me, Bruce, me and you might both get in trouble for this, but for a long time, I've, I've looked at like entire, there's like entire books when I go to the bookstore on just why God doesn't exist. Right. And just things like that. I'm like, why are you trying so hard? So, and I think part of mine, like when you talked about like the foxhole thing. Uh, So I'm a recovering drug addict and alcoholic. I got sober in 2012. And I've been an atheist my entire life. But like, when I was dying, and I went to 12 step programs, I was like, I hate this. But I need it right now. And you know, now I've been sober for nine years. But I like you, I can see how people benefit and this belief. And, and, you know, uh, the placebo effect is strong. Like when you talk about the Mr. Rogers sweater, yeah, yeah. If people act better while they're wearing this, cool. If my son feels braver, if I say, hey, this is a magic, whatever, you know? So, so that's where I'm always trying to find that, that balance and thinking about it. Like, so, and this might dive a little, you know, this kind of goes into like the ethical uh, side of things, but something I've noticed, right, is you have psychic A, right, yeah. explaining why psychic B, is a fraud. And then uh, a new thing too is uh, people's frequencies and use this frequency and it'll heal you. I've seen people just attack someone else and say that frequency doesn't work. And I'm just like, what, what are you talking (laughs) about? Right. But anyways, anyways, people will pay money, right. For a psychic, people will pay money for a course, people will pay money for crystals. So what are your thoughts around, like, the ethics around that? Like, yeah. where, where there's these battles and money's being made and, you know, I, I, yeah. I, I don't know.
1: Well, it, it, it's a difficult one. And I've actually been criticized for um, mm. not dismissing all new age healing. Um, I think when it's exploited, uh, when you basically have charlatans who are really just ripping people off, uh, yeah. clearly there, there's boundaries. But there are lots of people who don't do that, who actually believe. There, there are people who are religious who go into the hospitals trying to convince people about the, the value of religion. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it's. A, I don't think it can be a black and white issue because the placebo is actually part and parcel of modern medicine. A lot of the uh, the efficacy of various uh, medical proven interventions is placebo, Is the placebo? Mm-hmm. Uh, we know this, and uh, you know, there's a Ben Goldacre um, in this country has written about this and he agrees with me. I mean, he's also a big critic of, um, new age therapies, but we acknowledge that medical practices, a big component of if you're wearing the white coat and you're wearing the stethoscope and people think it's an effective treatment, they do get better. And that's a belief that's nothing to do with anything to do materially that we're doing with them medically. So I, 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 um, I have to acknowledge that modern medicine, scientific reason, rational-based, evidence-based medicine does have a component, which is belief. Um, And I also think for, if you've gone through everything and there's still nothing for you, then I don't think we should necessarily just dismiss uh, alternative uh, therapies. Um, And Mm -hmm. I know that's counter to a lot of my colleagues on that. Because take, for example, the number, one of the biggest problems uh, that our general practitioners see is back pain. Back pain mm. is notoriously difficult to treat. It's chronic, it goes on, and they can be a real drain on the system when you're putting someone through repeated yes. uh, assessments and various diagnoses and scanning and all the tests. We have a national health system here. They mm. end up being really, really expensive when you could just send them to a kind of an alternative therapist at a fraction of the price and they'll feel better. So as a pragmatist, I can see that actually, even though it goes, it runs counter to the Hippocratic Oath, and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of flack on this, <laughs> I can actually see actually for, some, a, a, for a group of chronic patients to whom we have no um, reasonable or we have mm-hmm. no evidence-based way of helping them, then I can see a place for that kind of alternative therapy. But I will say this, mm-hmm. I, it's not um it's not an alternative to the proven so I would never advocate or say it was right that someone seeks out an alternative therapist in to the exclusion of seeking conventional medicine Mm -hmm. because there's nothing in alternative therapy which is actually proven other than the placebo so it's a placebo if it works then it's because of the placebo but then we must recognize placebo is also part of conventional medicine as well
0: yeah, this is this is something I, I I don't know. Like, I feel like I think about it more than the average person, right? Like, uh, maybe it's because my drug of choice was prescription pain medications, and there are people with chronic pain who can't get access to them. So I do know what you mean, like chronic pain. And here in the United States, where we don't have a nationalized healthcare system, people are paying insane amounts of money. But uh, but yeah, I think it's a, a very nuanced conversation because I love, I love books on, you know, what good versus bad science is and all these other things. But I don't know if you saw, uh, I think it was last year, Netflix released a short docu-series called Unwell. Did you see that? It's all about like alternative medicine. So each episode kind of dives into a different alternative medicine. They have like essential oils in one, they have this like water detox in another, they have bee sting therapy, but I, I, I empathize because when you have people with these difficult medical issues, right? Where, you know, we we have so much, so many advances in medications and treatment, but certain things still can't be treated, right? And it's like, if they've gone through every single step and then all of a sudden acupuncture or something like that helps them, who am I to say this isn't science-based, but they feel better? You know what I mean? Exactly. And that's really tricky because, like you said, like with the Hippocratic Oath and stuff like that, and there's even with drug testing, there's a lot of uh, ethical things like where you have to disclose and yeah. and all of that. So, so I don't I don't know. Like, do you think like I don't know if you're aware like are our committees and organizations talking about these things and restructuring well, the the ethics behind it and all that? Well, well, there certainly
1: has been a big um, movement to get rid of the homeopathic hospitals because homeo- homeopathy was part was on the NHS. Mm. Uh, and so people were outraged that money for, uh, for the NHS was going into homeopathic hospitals. Now, I think we need to see this in context. The amount of money was not a lot. Uh, it was only about 6 million pounds, which sounds a lot of money, but spread out across the National Health Service. That's a yeah. fraction of what's spent on um, various intervention techniques. I, I think part of the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm. Mm. Um, and so I would use that central point is that as long as an alternative does no harm, then I'm okay with it. If it doesn't harm people financially or, or mentally or, or physically, then what what are we really getting ourselves sort of tied up in knots about? For a lot of people who are really against the homeopathic, I mean, they were pulling out the in- individual cases, and there have been some terrible situations where people have... Sought out alternative therapy in, to the exclusion of conventional therapy and I'm suffered for it, and that's clearly not acceptable because harm has occurred.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: when you're at, you know, when you're dealing with chronic cases, then I I find it difficult to sort of uh, dismiss uh, belief systems, whether they're religious or they're New Age, because for a lot of people they seem to provide some sort of uh, satisfactory support, and and mm-hmm. I think that's okay. I I don't really find, I mean. I, I think we have to do it by case-by-case by case basis. I don't think we can kind of, you know, just blindly say, okay, let's put homeopathy back into uh, mm-hmm. yeah. But it, 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 it's, uh, it's, it's a difficult one.
0: Yeah, I think, I think my concern would be, and this leads into the next question I wanted to ask you, is let's say somebody had chronic pain and everything like that. And You know, medications, uh, physical therapies weren't helping. They go and get some kind of new age treatment and they feel better. Let's say it's a placebo. Well, now, you know, so I, so I would say, okay, that's fine. They feel better. No harm was done. Okay. But now it is increased their belief that these things that aren't backed by science could work. So did I just open up a can of worms where this person is now living the rest of their life, not believing in conventional science? So the question I want to ask you is I've I've talked, I've had people like Michael Shermer on the podcast and Mick West on the podcast to talk about their books. And research shows that, you know, when it comes to conspiracy theories, if somebody Mm. believes in one conspiracy, they're more likely to believe in others. Right. So for example, um, I know somebody who believes in like crystals and energy healing and stuff like that. I'm like, okay, cool. But every day I've had to convince them about the science around COVID. So I'm like, you know, so when it comes to supernatural beliefs, is that something that I don't know if you've researched, like if someone's likely to believe in, like, I don't know, Superstitions or ghosts or essentialism—are they more likely to believe in, you know, a conspiracy or something that might be harmful? Is there any link there?
1: Well, there's there's been a, a bunch of—they're quite old studies now. So so generally, there's a gender difference for a start. So mm. males tend to believe in conspiracy theories, and females tend to believe mm. in, in more of the sort of spiritual, supernatural kind of thing. So that's an interesting thing, and that's because I think the argument with the conspiracy theories. Are driven by a a sense of um, being manipulated by an authoritarian form. And given the kind of gender manipulation has been going on for years, maybe the females have just kind of (laughs) accepted that's unfortunately the way our modern world works. And so uh, the, the thing is, it's very difficult to reason a person out of a position that they arrived at without any reason. And that's the point. You can provide as much evidence as you like, and that won't necessarily change people. But it is true. The more education you have, the less likely you are to succumb to new age thinking and belief systems. So I am not suggesting that we just kind of throw in the towel and say, OK, mm-hmm. let's just allow them to do that. Um, we'd still be burning witches. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, we've given up on the burning witches. But what will happen is that this is never going to go away. And I make this point in the mm-hmm. book. So it's part of the way we think. And, you know, you can just see the you can see how it has uh transitioned and changed over the past 50 years about what sort of things people believe in, you know? And it, it just, it's partly to do with testimony, um, but I think within most of us, there is this kind of willingness or, or need to believe there are some things which cannot be explained away. Mm-hmm. I mean, why is it that the supernatural is the number one genre in fiction? It is. Yeah. If you look at it, you know, go on Netflix and just look through it, it's just kind of full of it. And that's because it's just something that is at the heart of what we would like to believe is possible it intrigues us. Uh, the sense that there's more to this world is something mm-hmm. that you know, generates a sense of awe. And You don't even have to be you know, religious to feel a kind of sense of awe when you go into certain places or see certain things. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's within our nature. I don't think we're ever really gonna be able to educate people out of it. Um, mm-hmm. And also, if you look at our connections with each other, this goes back to what we are talking earlier on about sacredness. Um, we have to believe in certain sort of sacred states. Uh, we believe in love. We mm-hmm. believe in all sorts of things. that Actually, you can you can deconstruct them uh, scientifically. You can try and take it down to the molecular level, but that's not going to eradicate the experience that people have, which is a spiritual experience. It's an mm-hmm. emotional experience. And if you try to... You know break it down into something which is sort of uh, you know nuts and bolts people are going to object to that so you're always going to have this reservoir or this need to believe in the sort of deeper sense of what it is mm-hmm. now for some scientists Shermer and, and uh, others you know they, they'll they say well you just don't need religion at all you know you can just get rid of it you can get yeah. I, I i'm less optimistic about that I, I think there will always be that and um i can't, i always i never wrote this in the book and i wish i had but i, I go back to the thought experiment of uh you know lord of the flies mm. if you had taken a bunch of children and you throw them onto an island and there's no culture there's no church there's no adults my bottom, you know i would bet that they would generate their own gods and demons within enough time because it's in our nature to see the world as somehow having a it controlled mm-hmm. or, or meaningful, or having purpose, and this is you know what we call causal determinism. We see that things happen for a reason, mm-hmm. even though they're actually totally random. But we see everything as meaningful because that's a really good way of figuring out the world. Because sometimes it is, and you know, if mm-hmm. you assume this structure, then actually that's an efficient way of chopping it up. But it does lead to beliefs.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I, I recently uh, got into just like self-deception and trying to understand that. Why do we lie to ourselves? Why do we do that? And uh, a, a newer book recently came out called uh, Useful Delusions. And yeah. it talks about these things. And, and yeah, like sometimes, you know, like when you, were, when you were just talking, like sometimes we need to give ourselves hope. You know what I mean? That things will work out, things will get better. And if we didn't lie to ourselves every now and then, why would I ever try? Why would I ever, Why you know, like uh, yourself, like why would you write a book if you didn't think people might be interested in it? You know, and so I'm always working on that balance, like looking at the science and the evidence and everything like that. And then sometimes I'm just like, I, I try to like, I don't know, compartmentalize it and separate them and just be like, okay, this thing I'm not gonna worry about because it gives me a little bit of hope and maybe I'll lie to myself and that's that's totally cool. Oh, but I, I, I only have a few more questions for you and we're going to backtrack a little bit. So okay. I forgot to ask you when we were talking about the dreams, right? Oh,
2: uh, All dream. right.
0: Like you dream that somebody dies and then you get that call and you're like, oh, right? Yeah. So something you, you discuss in the book and something that has just changed my life um, oh, really? <laughs> is, is about, because I'm not a math guy. I'm not a numbers guy. Right. right. But when it comes to coincidences. Oh yeah. So you talk about it in the book, like if you, I can't remember the exact number. If you put X amount of people in a the room, oh, yeah, there's yeah. a good chance someone will have your birthday. But right. we, we, we act like when someone has the same day as us, we, we lose our mind. But that number is surprisingly low. Yeah,
1: it's but, 23. <laughs>
0: yeah, right? Yeah. Like that, well, that's it, crazy. It,
1: yeah. I mean, it, you got to remember it could be any, any day of the month or any birthday. So there are 365 days in the year, so it could be a, a match of any of those two days. So um, that's one thing. Because we're so egocentric, we only think about our own birthday, of course. Yeah. And again, you, know, you will hear about, oh, I went to this birthday party, I met this first, and it turns out I have the same birthday. Oh God, that's so spooky coincidental. But yeah, you only need to have 23 people on average uh, at a party, uh, and to go lots of parties throughout the year. On half of those occasions, there'll be two people in that room who share a birthday. And this is a mathematical, statistical fact. Uh, having them the exact day um, and knowing in advance, that's more, that's actually astronomically huge, but it's, it's just one of these quirks that, uh, if you take something like star signs, you know, it's highly likely that a lot of people you're speaking to are gonna have the same star sign as you. But of course, as soon as you disclose yeah. that, oh, wow, you know, and that's because we're seeking out these patterns all the time, uh, we're, we're testing each other, looking for a significant, mm-hmm. and, and uh, because we're trying to, um, we're trying to relate to other people, when yeah. we meet others, we're trying to figure what's our mutual interest what, how do we connect and and something like that just seems to be beyond a coincidence and and that's one of the reasons we're just really poor at predicting stuff
0: yeah it's it, it's interesting because i I've just kind of noticed this my whole life since you know I was younger in high school and friends started dating and and it 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 seems like we really look for those those seemingly random things that we connect on, whether it's a birthday, whether it's an astrological sign, uh, whether it's this obscure band or TV show, right. We're looking for this like unique thing that we connect on. For, for example, I had a friend who was really into obscure music, right. And I was kind of into it too, but you go to a concert and there's hundreds of people in that room yet when she would meet a guy who liked that band, she acted like she ran into the last person on earth. I'm like, I'm like, don't you think like you could just go to that concert? But the other thing, uh, you know, when we talk about like astrology and uh, dreaming and then something happens in this coincidence, um, can you talk a little bit about how the mind works where we remember the hits more than the misses? So let's say a psychic yeah. made 15 predictions and they hit one, right? We're not going to remember the other 14 that they didn't get right. We're going to remember that one. Why, why does our brain have a tendency to latch onto that and not recognize, you know, like you got one out of 15?
1: Well, because it's, it's simply to do with uh, the volume of information that we're processing. Um, you don't notice anything unless you pay attention to it. And so, you know, my PhD work was on visual attention. Mm. And there's, a, there's a whole field of uh, demonstrating that, uh, you may have heard of that example where you're watching a basketball player and a gorilla walks in.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, the reason you don't see it is because your attention is not on it, it's on the, on the basketball player. So unless you're attending to something, you don't mm. see it. And the reason that is, is because of the vast volume of information which is streaming in, flowing in, all sorts of information. So you cannot attend to everything. What you notice are those significant events which capture your attention
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh and, and that's why your attention can be drawn to something which seems to be unlikely but given the vast volume of things then the unlikely is very likely okay but you just pay attention to those things which uh, you, which seem auspicious and that's simply because our brains do not um, take note of everything because they can't there's just too much information and that's why you remember it as being something significant.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I forgot what the number was, but like, for example, you know, uh, I, I believe the number was like, we have like tens of thousands of thoughts every single day, right? Mm-hmm. And, but like, if we're thinking about a friend and then they call us, a friend who we haven't talked to in a while, we're like, oh my God, I might be psychic or, or whatever. Yeah. And we forget about how many other things we think about every single day. That just never happened. And just personally, what I do is I try to sit back and just look at the opposite, right? Like, yeah. how often do I not notice this, or you know, yeah. whatever. And then, you know, just so it doesn't, you know, I'm not making too many decisions based on irrational beliefs during my day. So I, I don't know. It sounds it sounds like you do something. You kind of try to find that balance between yeah. the the rational.
1: Yeah, you're about six
0: hundred thousand moments in each waking day. Six hundred thousand
1: uh, moments, which just evaporate into you, you forget about. But when something triggers, then that becomes significant. So. Your 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 stream of consciousness is like a moving window, and most uh, of it is being thrown out. Okay, but when something flags up, then that's what your memory pays attention to, uh, and it just seems to be so unlikely. And that's that's kind yeah, of it
0: yeah. So here here's here's the last question. Like uh, you know, okay. I I have for you so. Let's say, and this is funny, because this, this would be something kind of supernatural. If just like tomorrow, if I can give you a magic wand and you just eliminate all of our supernatural beliefs and we're just rational human yeah, know. you know, be- beings, like, would you do it? Or do you think that supernatural beliefs are more beneficial than they do damage to us? Whether it's through being yeah. exploited or spending money or making bad decisions, like, what would you do? Okay. I think it's the, I, I think it's the
1: people who are bad not the beliefs mm. uh, so I, it's the way that beliefs are used to uh, uh, for agendas so take um, you know take the whole uh, Islamic phobia thing it, it's not Islam per se it's the way it's being used and this is you know um, that pe- people like uh, Sam Harris have gone on about um, and Dawkins have gone about and that's why people got into this sort of anti-religion movement. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's not the beliefs, it, although there are some beliefs admittedly, which are, you know, are pretty um, unpalatable these days. Um, no, I, I, I think we've got to look at the other side of the coin and see the, the, the way that this has inspired people to do incredible acts of creativity and music and art. And, and, I, and I don't just mean, um, you know, odes to God or odes to stuff like that. I, yeah. I, I think people need to have a sense of uh, a deeper purpose to life. Um, because if you start to think about life in a very sort of uh, not a nihilistic position, but just kind of mm-hmm. we're just you know we're, we're meat bags on a on a rocket on a planet, which is you know it starts to become very unsavory. So we kind of need this kind of sense of the possible uh, to, to be hopeful, I suppose. Yeah. So I, I suppose, given going back to your question, I probably wouldn't swip, switch the uh, flip the switch uh, if I could target certain uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, Uh, but not all of them. I think that we still need a little bit. And I think it's inevitable, as I said, because of the way that we seek out structure.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's, that's very well said. You know, it's the, it's the people and what they do with the beliefs. And, you know, you can go to two different churches who believe in the exact same religion, but one's preaching some bad stuff and one's preaching more love and tolerance and, and things like that. So I, yeah, I I think if we get to that and we can start helping people take that belief and use it for good, then, then cool, we're we're much better off. So, so yeah. Before I let you go, for everybody who's just introduced to you, what, where can they find you? What are you working on? Because we're talking about Super Sense, which you wrote yeah, yeah, that was, years that- ago. Do you yeah. have any? You have any new books coming out? Are you working on anything? Where can we follow up with you? And well, um,
1: actually, the book that followed uh, uh, Super Sense is the one which is the bestseller, which is called The Self Illusion, uh, mm-hmm. which actually covers a lot of the territory you were talking about, Chris. So I do recommend you. That one actually was an interesting book because that's the one which is the most controversial because I mm. attack the very core thing that most of us hold onto, which is that we're individuals with a sense of the self.
0: Yeah. And actually
1: I, I deconstruct that. And that actually, I think is a uh, very, it's, it's, it's been very influential. And I'm very pleased with that. Um, my most recent book is called Possessed. And that's just uh, really developing the notion of how ownership has really come to control us and the future for ownership. Uh, in a world which is changing and the implications that has in in, in terms of climate change and, and the mm. limited resources of this planet. But uh, yeah, no, I'm um, I'm currently working on happiness and the myths about it, because I think uh, it's a bit of a bandwagon. Uh, I do think you can be happier, but I don't think it's this sort of, uh, you know, sort of uh, panacea that everyone talks about. So that's mm. kind of what I, what I do at the moment.
0: Yeah, that, that that all sounds great. And yeah, so here's here's the thing. Like I mentioned, as soon as we, we get off this call, I'm going to go buy a copy of The Self-Delusion. So I might be emailing you again to come back and we can talk about The Sense yeah. of Self.
1: No, Chris, make sure you buy The Self-Delusion. The Self-Delusion was a follow-up by a
0: competitor. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay i'm changing my notes now don't want to do that so so yeah and then uh and then yeah i am i'm excited about the the happiness book too i i as somebody who comes from a mental health background yeah. and like i'm interested in kind of this you know idea of like how happy should we be and you know I, it feels like there's almost this black and white thinking of i should always be happy and never have any discomfort but then there's the whole you know about resilience and how we get stronger through going through hardships and failing. And so I'm looking forward to that one as well. So yeah, Bruce, thank you so much for coming on. And I'm sure we'll be talking again real, real soon. Thank you, Chris. All right, right, everybody, there you have it. That was my conversation with Bruce Hood. And I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed talking with Bruce. Like that is such, it's such a fun conversation conversation I love learning about that stuff and talking with you know skeptics and people who research it but yeah I think my favorite thing about Bruce if I had to pick one favorite thing it's that yeah like uh he's somebody I can relate to where it's like yeah let people believe you know what they, what they want if they're not hurting anybody you know we got into those conversations about how you know if people believe in one thing they're more likely to believe in other things like conspiracies and all that but we take that in a case by case basis and you know whatever. But hey, if the placebo effect or whatever helps you out or gives you hope, do your thing. But anyways, huge thanks to Bruce. Make sure you check out the description down below. Make sure you're following him. Grab a copy of Supersense. I'm gonna link down below uh, the Self Illusion as well as Possessed. Possessed, I actually, since recording this, I finished the Self Illusion. Now I'm gonna go get me Possessed. And yeah, so, um, and stay tuned. Stay tuned because he is working on that other book that he mentioned about happiness and all that. So that's all down in the description below, along with my social media. So make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at the Rewired Soul. And if you're new to the podcast, if you enjoyed this conversation, if you love learning about all sorts of different topics and having interesting conversations, make sure you're following the podcast or subscribe to it. If you're on Apple, make sure you leave a rating and review. And what also helps out is if you share this episode. So you know some people who are into supernatural or spooky stuff, or maybe they just really love reading their horoscope, go share this episode with them. All this stuff really helps get the the word out about the podcast because the the algorithms love it. All right, and uh, for any of you who wanna support the podcast in any way, there are some links down in the description below. Uh, I've self-published some books mainly around like mental health and recovery. Those are at the rewired soul.com, link down below, as well as uh, the Patreon link. And if you're like me and want to improve your mental health, there is a link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. That's a service I've personally used because I'm all about improving my mental health. And yeah, it's affordable, it's online, you work with a licensed therapist from your state. And the cool thing about it too, like I think the biggest selling point for me is that with a a push of a button, you could switch therapists, all right? You could just totally ghost your therapist. You don't have to go through the whole awkward conversation stuff that you have to do in person. So that is probably one of my favorite features of uh, BetterHelp Online Therapy. So if you're into that, check out the affiliate link down below. All right. So, again, make sure you uh, follow Bruce. Check out some of his books. And, yeah, I appreciate you all hanging out, listening to this uh, conversation. And tomorrow I have another episode to kind of continue with the spooky vibe. And this episode I talked to somebody who has researched so much about, like, why do we like being scared? Why do we like scary movies? Why do we like roller coasters or haunted houses or whatever? And why is like screaming therapeutic? That's what I talk about tomorrow. So make sure you hang out and don't miss that episode. All right. Have an awesome day. I'll talk to you next time.